I train for triathlon. That means having to swim and cycle. And when I am training, then I cannot be in this hay because I know that I can't fit into a swim cap. So that means having to make the conscious decision to change the particular hairstyle that I'm going to have if I'm training so that my hair can fit into a swim cap, so that my hair can fit into a cycling helmet. The fact that I have to make the conscious decision to change particular things about me so that I can participate, that's just me. What happens to the other person who decides they're not going to do it? As you say, then that becomes apathy and they don't participate at all. Does our evidence base and literature actually reflect people's socioeconomic and cultural differences? Well, today we explored this with Noma Kambuzi, who's a sports physiotherapist, exercise scientist, and she has a special interest in African women, girls in sport, and those from middle to low income settings. She's also done a TED talk in South Africa titled provocatively, Women Live in a Man's World and Black Women Are Just Squatters. So we explored how the research is quite biased and how this can even impact us as clinicians and some practical and helpful strategies where we can truly uncover and relate with empathy about someone's socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds. This was a real eye-opening episode. Please enjoy this. My name is Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Welcome, Noah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a while in the making, isn't it? Yeah, this is really cool. I'm excited for this one. I think it's going to be a powerful episode because I watched your TED Talk. I think it was a TEDx in South Africa. Could you start this episode with the title of that? And that'll give everyone a clue about what we're talking about. It was called It's a Men's World. Girls just live here and black women are squatters. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm open to be corrected. I think it was something along those lines. Had to be provocative, no. It was. Super powerful title. And I'm like, what have I got myself into here? (laughs) Really good talk. Do you want to start with the theme or the story that started that talk? And then we can get into some of the research more of of the health sciences and what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So the opening lines or the opening part of the TED Talk is about me describing my experiences driving. And that is having to make these adjustments, like I have to slide my seat so far forward so that I can touch the pedals, then having to adjust it up so that I can see over the windscreen of the car and the seat belt is, because of all of these adjustments, the seat belt just cuts across my neck and it doesn't sit across my chest. And all of this, which in contrast, my partner and my brother don't have to do when they get into a car, they just slide into a seat and then they drive away. And that tells you how the car designed wasn't designed for someone like me. It was designed for someone like them because it's optimized for them. When they get into a car, they don't need to adjust anything. They just get on with it. When I get into a car, because I'm a visitor in the car, then I have to be adjusting all of these things. That's it. Then you can, I suppose, then draw parallels from not just the car design, but everything else around that isn't designed with my particular hand size in mind, or that isn't designed with my particular dimensions in mind. And that is just the world that we live in, that it is not engineered or optimized for the female body, but it is optimized for the male body, for the male anatomy. And then in medical science, that then extends to physiology as well. It's super powerful and a really thought-provoking story to start the talk with. 
And for those who don't know your heritage and your background, would you like to speak a little bit to that? And then we can get into how the research hasn't really reflected that heritage either. So I am Zimbabwean. I am a Black African woman. Well, I grew up in Zimbabwe, which is, I think, by World Bank standards, would be low-income country or maybe like lower-middle-income country. And I live in South Africa, which is a middle-income country as well. So those would be, I'm a person of color. I'm a woman from the global south. And that we know that just in society, that would then make me a member of a marginalized population. And that comes with it with certain sociocultural considerations, with certain economic considerations, with certain environmental considerations. And those then become a part of me that, again, medical science and much research hasn't much paid attention to because the few times that we do research or the few times that we make considerations for women and girls, it tends to then be women and girls that are not like me. It is women and girls that don't have my hair type, just women and girls who don't have my kind of body as well. So on the one hand, I am excluded for being a woman. On the other hand, I'm excluded for being a woman of color from a low and middle income country. And that exclusion in research then reflects itself in policy because the research wasn't done around me and my circumstances or for someone like me. Then that just reflects in, in the policies that we come up with in sports or in making drugs or whatever it is that they are not made for me or my circumstances. Yeah. How have you seen this? this impacts people, the people that you've either worked with or yourself, what message is that sending? And how does that make people feel when there's a subliminal message there, right? I think people that I work with in general, they tend to be African women and girls in sport. And for some, it then becomes they don't participate in a particular sport altogether. Because even though people are not saying it, and even though there isn't direct messaging that says you are not welcome, it does kind of feel like you are not welcome or in your authentic self, as you are, you are not welcome. The yeah. only way you are welcome is if you make these particular adjustments. The only way you can be welcome to play a particular sport. Again, another example would be some uniforms, let's say beach volleyball. I remember there was a bit of a talking point with beach volleyball uniforms. They were sexualized like women's kids. So where I come from, Women have to be dressed in a particular way. So there are some cultures and there are some religions where you have to be covered up. So if you're going to tell me that the only way I can participate in a particular sport is if I'm wearing a bikini that is only seven centimeters wide at its maximum, then I am excluded altogether. So things like that would mean certain people don't get to participate altogether because they don't feel like there's an alternative. They don't feel like their context is represented. They don't feel like if they come in as they are a person who wants to cover up, then they can't participate. You can only participate if you are not covered up. And if you want to cover up, then stay away. You can only participate if you have a particular type of hair. If you have that other one, then stay away. So I think it then excludes a whole segment of society from participating and from enjoying the benefits of particular activities and on a more visceral level, it just feels unfair, doesn't it? It just feels, yeah, you are not welcome. You are not feeling like anyone is rolling out the welcome mat at the very least. There's also a disconnect of 
the cultural relevance of some of those things, I could imagine their response might be apathetic of like, well, change your hair or cut your hair without any connection to culturally what that thing means to that person. Yeah. And I imagine you would have experienced that or you've seen that in some people you've worked with. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's also personal. It's not just in people that I've worked with. I train for triathlons. That means having to swim and cycle. And when I am training, then I cannot be in this hair because I know that I can't fit into a swim cap. So that means having to make the conscious decision to change the particular hairstyle that I'm going to have if I'm training so that my hair can fit into a swim cap, so that my hair can fit into a cycling helmet. The fact that I have to make the conscious decision to change particular things about me so that I can participate, that's just me. What happens to the other person who decides they're not going to do it? As you say, then that becomes apathy and they don't participate at all. And us then understanding that we need to take that into consideration, it seems so mundane. It seems like something that doesn't matter. I mean, after all, it's just hay. Why would you make such a fuss about hay? something like that. But we know that there's so much history and pain and sociocultural pride, relevance, or even shame that is associated with hair. And even though it might seem like it's something inconsequential, it matters to a lot of people. But for some, it's like, I mean, it's just hair. It grows out of your head. And why would we be making a fuss about it? This podcast is sponsored by Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that helps you save time. It's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. With Clinico, you'll get everything you need to run a successful physio practice, like online booking tools, treatment notes, digital forms, customizable body charts, and much more. Physio Network members get 90 days for free now. Signing up takes one minute. Just visit clinico.com forward slash physio dash network. Yeah, it's super important. I was thinking about patient-centered care as you were speaking and how we're just not patient-centered if we're not taking into account any of those details. I think it came through in your TED Talk where also the treatments, not just equipment as a good analogy, but potentially that treatments are not patient-centered or even incorrect treatments because this was the treatment given to this male triathlete and now we're trying to apply that training plan to this person periodized in the incorrect way and that person has a menstrual cycle, but this is what the best evidence says. Could you speak a little bit to that? I think, yes, you are right that we keep beating the drum of we doing patient-centered care, which in a way is patient-centered, but we need to ask which patient are we centering this treatment around? So it is patient-centered, but that patient isn't everyone. That patient tends to be hegemonic, white male, from a high-income country, from educated, democratic, rich country, industrialized country, you know. So yes, it is patient-centered. It's just not every patient around which that treatment is centered. And yes, you are right that we can't be copying and pasting treatment, something that has worked on a male triathlete or male football player cannot be taken directly as is without adjustment, without consideration for just one, the biological differences in women and girls, and second, the context. So one, a treatment might work perfectly well in male football players in New Zealand, and then we try and take that 
and put it on male football players in Cameroon, for example, and it may not work. And I think we have this conundrum, especially for injury interventions, where we know that something works perfectly well in one part of the world. And then when you try to take it as is to another part of the world, it just falls apart. But that's because for the most part, we haven't, again, put the patient at the center of this treatment or this intervention. We know it worked for a particular type of patient, but that type of patient had a different kind of playing pitch. That kind of patient had a different kind of nutrition. They had a different set of circumstances. Their life is different. They had a different set of playing shoes, you know, things like that. And that's just even when you are speaking about the same gender or the same sex. Now, if you throw in gender, in addition, something that worked perfectly well in male football players, and then you try and take it on to female football players, that is a whole other dynamic. Similarly, if you then put in the sociocultural environment that you have male football players from a high-income country who earn big bucks, so they have a different life, they don't have caregiving duties, they don't have a dual career, they don't have all of those things to think about, and you take an ACL rehabilitation or ACL prevention strategy and you want to put it on women and girls who don't have the same access to the gym, who don't have access to good pitches, who don't have access to a psychologist or a physiotherapist when they need one, it is all going to fall apart. So whilst patient-centered care might be the in thing, we need to acknowledge that we are talking about a particular type of patient and then we forget that when we talk about the rest of our patients. We keep saying we're doing this biopsychosocial model of care when we're taking care of them. But truth be told, I think we're falling short. We do emphasize sometimes, actually, we do the bio part of it. But again, if you are a woman, if you are a girl, then the bio part falls apart very quickly. And then the psycho part of it, and then the sociological part of it, again, do you know what I mean? So... Yeah, we still have a long way to go for us to actually be truly patient-centered in in our management of our athletes and our patients. I agree, and not that I'm picking on males here, because there'll be all therapists that do this really well, and there'll be all therapists that don't do this so well. But if we got into the dirt now of like, let's say there's a young male therapist in their first year, what would be some practical things where they could take the lessons you're speaking to that would actually help them be patient-centered when they're in front of a woman or when they're in front of someone from a completely different cultural background, is that coming through in some strategies for you? Do you have certain questions, certain things you might ask, certain things you might say? Getting really practical with that, what might you train someone to do? First of all, need to acknowledge that we are going to have our biases. So if I am the therapist standing in front of a person, male therapist, female th- because you know what, it doesn't matter what gender therapist you are. Because you are a particular therapist, because I am a therapist who is a woman of color from a low and middle income country, I come with my biases because I am that. And therefore, when I meet someone else who isn't like me, I am going to present with my biases. And I think similarly, it's we need to acknowledge that because I am woman of color from a low and middle income country with a particular set of circumstances, I view the world differently. So it is knowing that my set of circumstances are different and my default is different. And I think if we are to go back to like our undergrad notes on biopsychosocial care, 
We do have it. That's the thing. So it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. It's not like we're going to have another TED talk on this is the biopsychosocial model of care. We do learn it. It is being taught already in school. It's just that when we come to the practice, we ignore this. Remember when you're doing your first assessment as a student, you have this very long assessment form that, amongst other things, is going to be asking about those things. You're asking if they are married. You're asking if they have uh, chronic conditions. You're asking if they have any caregiving duties. You're asking where they live, even though we don't then, in our treatment, consider their postcode, but we already ask these questions. So when we get to practice, I think we become comfortable in our practice that we start throwing that away, but we already do this. And I think it's literally, we need to fall back onto our undergraduate notes because we already have this and we're already doing it. Yeah. Are there any specific tips or questions that you might trigger people who are listening to this to get curious about? For me, Actually, that's the key word is curiosity. So I might even ask quite naively, tell me more about your culture. Tell me more about what you do at home. That has always worked well for me, almost appearing to drop my biases and just getting really naive and say, tell me about your culture in Zimbabwe or in South Africa. What does a day look like for you? Do you have any ideas around that? I think that's the perfect example. Instead of asking someone the same way that asking how many hours a day do you sit, is more difficult for you to elicit how much sedentary time someone actually has. It's much easier to ask them, okay, tell me about your day. What do you do when you get up? Who do you live with? Do you have an extended family? Like, seriously, tell me about your day. What does that look like? And I think that question, in its naivety, elicits more from the people we're talking about, from the people we're treating and from the people we're dealing with than any structured question we would have. But I think for me, it's... When I have this plan set out, I ask myself, and then by extension them, how is this different for a person with disability? How is different for a person who is transgender? How is different for a person in a low socioeconomic status? How is different for a person who is unhoused? You know, So it's trying to think, even though I feel like I have a set of marginalized groups, quote-unquote, it helps for me to have a set of circumstances that I ask myself when I'm done with this, how is this different for a person of color? How is this different for a person from a low and middle income country? How is this different, you know, all of those individuals? And by so doing, allow me to think of something outside of what I think of what my bias or my default is. No, I think that is a a wonderful bit of advice to leave it on. And we're going to include your TED Talk in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us and speaking about this important topic. Thank you so much for having me.